Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in terms of the author. And I don't know what they are, but I do know that there's, uh, you can identify uh, who they wrote to. Matthew was a publican, and that meant he was a tax collector, hated by the people. And he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And in it, as you're reading it, he makes no explanation at all about the Jewish holidays and festivals and observances that they observe. Now that tells you right away that he wrote to the Jewish mind. You come to Mark, we don't know a whole lot about Mark, uh, other than God chose him to write his gospel. And in his gospel, you can see that he wrote to the Gentile mind because every time that he come up against, come up with information about or recorded history of the Jewish uh, ceremonies and civil, uh, their ceremonies and uh, observances uh, under the law, he always stopped to explain to his audience the nature of that Jewish custom. That tells you he's not writing to Jews, he's writing to somebody, a group of people called Gentiles that doesn't necessarily understand everything about Judaism. And then there's Luke, and we're not, we know him as being a physician. That's what the scriptures declare him to be. He was a doctor. And of course, he not only wrote the Gospel of uh, Luke, but he wrote the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles. And the gospel that he wrote and uh, the book of Acts, he addressed to most excellent Theophilus, of which we don't know exactly who that is. All we know from research is that only the high mucky mucks in the Roman government were called most excellent. And so he wrote to, to a Gentile uh, in regard to all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. And then in the book of Acts, he goes into the establishment of what Jesus came to build, the church. <coughs> and then there's John that we're studying this morning. <coughs> and we're going to look into a little bit about John before we get into the book. Uh, he's pretty interesting. I always like John and his brother James because uh, the, the Bible makes it clear they were the sons of Zebedee, which has no real significance, but they were brothers. And the Lord chose both of them to be apostles. And when you get into a study of the apostles, John being one of them, you learn some interesting things about Jesus' choice of men. He chose what the world would not have chosen. Because all through the apostles' life, the enemy always referred to them as lowly Galileans. In Acts 2, are not these lowly Galileans? And here, how, how hear we every man in our own language wherein we were born? And so... The Lord chose common people. In fact, on one occasion, he prayed before the Jews 
to his father uh, for their benefit. And he said, I thank thee, Father, that you haven't revealed yourself unto the wise and the prudent, but unto the simple. I don't know about you, but I'm a simple man. I'm one who I like to, uh, I'm proud of, and I like to brag about the fact that I hunger and thirst after righteousness. I'm the man, I'm trying to be the man in every respect that Jesus uh, exemplified in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Hungers and thirsts, poor, uh, destitute of spirit, and uh, the attributes that he and the qualities that he talked about the believers in Christ, the believers that would inherit the kingdom that he come to establish. So, uh, where was I? Well, I forgot, so I guess it don't matter. <coughs> The Gospel of John. We'll make a textual study as we go through from chapter 1 to the end of the book. And we'll try to deal with the highlights of the book. We're not, we won't be able to absorb all that's in the book. Uh, but we'll naturally see its highlights. Uh, but recognize that John's Gospel here will present to us the climactic consummation of God's eternal purpose. What was that eternal purpose? Well, that's what we want to look at here in a few verses. Uh, God purposed to save man in Christ Jesus before he ever made the world. Now, to me, that's astronomical. Uh, that tells me truly as Paul stated, as he quoted the Old Testament in Romans 4.17, that God is the one who calls things that be not as though they already were. In other words, there's nothing hidden from God, past, present, or future. He looks down through the corridors of time, and he sees the end from the very beginning. In fact, when you read Revelation 4 and verse 11, the angel's acclamation of God's glory, he says, uh, For by thy power all things were and were created. Now that's not the way your vision, your version will read because it's, they're trying to translate from Greek into English uh, a phrase that's kind of difficult. So they just declare that those things that are were created by God for his glory. But the Greek is very clear in that passage. It says all things were and were created. And so you existed before you existed. The cross of Christ was set up before, uh, before Christ ever came to this world. God in his mind had already crucified his son before he ever made the world before he ever made Adam and Eve. Now doesn't that explode to you a, a, a lot of information that you need to examine? That means that God knew man would sin, didn't he? And he also knew that strength comes through the recognition of that. And the man who's poor in spirit is going to seek after 
fulfillment of something that life does not have to offer. Anyway, it explodes a whole lot of information to you and I that God crucified His Son, made it vicarious for sacrifice for sin before sin ever existed. And so we're going to look at some of them passages where God planned our salvation. And then we'll see the consummation of it in the book of John, where John brings us to the conclusion of that purpose and plan that God had before He ever made the world. And, and then we'll be reading after the revelation of the Spirit as He makes known that purpose. So God planned it, Jesus executed it, and the Holy Spirit revealed it. And all this happened before time began. Because before time began, you were. And when time began, you were. You are. <laughs> but for His glory, all things were and were created. Now, if you don't understand that, we'll join the club. <laughs> but that's what the Greek language says. And I'm just a reporter telling you what it says. So don't come to me with, what does that mean? <coughs> All right. <coughs> so John is going to present to us the climactic consummation of God's eternal purpose. Let's look at some passages before we get into this. Let's look at the eternal purpose of God. And we'll just, uh, there's many passages, but I've picked out four, uh, three, four. Ephesians 3, verse 11. Paul, as he wrote to the church at Ephesus, he said, According to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God had a purpose, an eternal purpose. Before we, uh, all right. Now, Ephesians 1.4 tells us when he purposed that. Ephesians 1.4 According as he hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. When did he choose the Ephesians, Paul said, and you and I, Christians, before the foundation of the world? To what intent did he choose us? We'll read the rest of the verse. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love. And I, I can't quote that verse without bringing in a little explanation. Sorry about that. But the church is holy and without blemish, and yet it has all kinds of problems. You want proof? Read 1 Corinthians. We're studying that on Wednesday night, aren't we? And we're finding out that that church had 17 major problems. Bad problems. But how did Paul, in his inspiration from God, how did he start the letter? He addressed it to the church of God at Corinth. Do you know the fellow in the fifth chapter that was living with his father's wife at the moment, at the time, he heard that, that he is part of the church of God. Those people taking one another to court and suing one another 
and having no love for one another, they also heard what Paul said, that they were the church of God, that they were the sanctified and the justified. And those are the words that Paul used in the first nine verses of chapter 1. And he brought them to realize how valuable they were in the sight of God. They were purchased and possessed. They were his possession. They were his family. They had problems, yes, but they were his family. And the wisdom behind his approach was that first you get them to recognize how valuable they really are before God. And then you go into the discussion of what they need to repent of. And they did, even the man living with his father's wife. You get to the second letter of Corinthians and Paul acknowledges that that man repented. But they had 17 major problems. And so getting back to Ephesians 1 verse 4, where it said that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That holiness and that being without blame is not by our works. It's by what Christ did at Calvary. Our salvation was purchased uh, in the mind of God before he made the world. And we saw it happen in history in a time-space dimension we call history 2,000 years ago on a hill called Golgotha, Calvary. Well, I don't want to get off into preaching about grace. It's awful easy. But I'm just going to say that's, that's a... A concept that is still taught today, and no matter what kind of teaching you do, you always start with a positive, then you transfer into what's wrong. Yeah. If you start off a conversation with anybody with a negative, it sits the whole tone, and you don't get nowhere with it. And, and we see that in every book. He starts out with a positive, <laughs> yeah. telling them who they are, <coughs> who, who represents them, just like mm. in the book here. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Verse 3, he always, God always does that. Starts out with a positive, and then goes into what's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that's still taught today. Well, that's the way you deal with a son. That's the way I dealt with my sons, anyway. Uh, when they showed a little sign of rebellion, or they didn't hear very good, or whatever the problem you take them as it were to the cloaked bedroom and you explain to them, son, now you know God, dad loves you. I provide for you. I take care of you. I see, I see your happiness the best I can. I'm for you. But we can't tolerate this rebellion. And so I've told you that I'm going to whoop your butt and you're going to get it here in a minute. But I want you to know God, love, dad loves you. And that's the way, uh, like Butch said, the apostles approached everything. Well, that's the way they approached it in Ephesians, that God's choice was to choose people in Christ, holy and without blemish. And somehow the legalists got this idea, boy, I've really got to buckle down and get serious about this, or I'm lost. No, you're not. God deals with us as with sons, doesn't he? He promised that in prophecy. He deals with us as children. 
Look how he pleaded with the nations in the Old Testament. He told them, well, the Hebrew writer tells us that God not willing that any man should perish. And God proved that all the way through the Old Testament. He pleaded with the nations to repent before he just destroyed them. And incidentally, if you've never considered it before, you need to consider that history, your history book, is nothing but a directory through the cemetery of nations that once were and are no more because God finally had to step in and do something about it. In fact, all the way through the Old Testament, God pleaded with the nations, just come into my presence, he said, and, and admit what you've done, and I'll forgive you, and I'll bless you. And, of course, they were like Israel in Jeremiah's day. They said, we will not. They were very religious people, went to services every Sabbath and all of that, but they wouldn't listen to God. You got people of that caliber today, claims to be Christians, professes to be Christians. But there's certain, there's certain things they won't tolerate in the Word of God. They won't do it. Jeremiah stood and cried to that nation, and he was the most unsuccessful preacher that's ever been recorded. Preached for 40 years and never had a convert. Watched the whole nation go into Babylon's captivity. And you can't help but feel sorry for the guy. They tried to kill him, his own people. The church of that time, God's children, tried to kill him because he spoke the word of God. He pleaded with them, come, stand in the way and see, and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way, and walk therein. And their lifestyle said very clearly, we will not. And you can see the patience of God and, uh, and his assurance of their salvation if they repented. Because uh, in Psalms 89, 14, we learn about God that he sits on a throne of righteousness and justice. What does all that mean? We'll take that thought over to 2 Timothy 1, verse 13. Paul said, and I quote, that we can deny God, but God cannot deny himself. There is some things that God cannot do, and there are some things that God will not do. He stands at the door and knocks, a man's heart, Revelation says, but he will not force entry. You have to invite him in. And in this passage, uh, God has no choice. He can't deny himself. Well, what's himself? Righteousness and justice. That's the throne he sits on. That's where he makes his decisions. That's where his rulership comes from. And he can't deny himself. James says that God cannot lie. So there are some things that God cannot do. Uh, but he pleaded with the nations. And God brings you into the realm of decision. In uh, Jeremiah 9 and verse 7, you read the first nine chapters of Jeremiah and you're reading about the ugliest people you'll ever meet. I mean, their tongue is dis 
described as arrows that they shoot and dissolve people and kill people. And it's ugly what he presents in nine chapters. And when he gets to verse 7, you know what God says? I have to punish him. And he asks this question, how else can I do? He wants you to stand in his shoes for just a moment and ask yourself, how else can God do? He blessed them. He chose them as a nation. And they continually rebelled against him. As Stephen said in Acts 7, chapter, verse 51, he told the hierarchy of the Jews and the Jewish people as a whole, he said, you do always resist the Spirit of God. As your fathers did, so do ye. And then he proved his point. He said, just show me one of the prophets that your fathers hadn't killed. And he sent his own son and you killed him. But there's some things that God cannot do. And in this particular passage, he's bringing judgment on them. He's going to send them off to Babylon for an attitude adjustment because he loves them. He's taking little Johnny to the bedroom, isn't he? And he's going to reason with him for 70 years. You read about it in Hosea 2, verse 14 and 15. God loved Israel and he spoke of her as a wife. Now a wife answers to her husband, doesn't he? Well, maybe not in Bitten City, but in the Bible, she answers to her husband. She obeys him in all things. Well, they weren't obeying God. They had no use for him. He blessed them, he provided for them, and they just threw a shoe every time. They just spoiled, rotten. And, uh, well, I forgot what I brought that up for. Somebody help me out. Oh, yeah, thank you. So, God spoke to this wife in the analogy he uses of her. She was a wife and he was a husband <coughs> to him. And he spoke to him in Hosea 2, verse 14 and 15. He said, I will allure her into the valley of Achor. In the Hebrew, Achor is the valley of trouble. And he was forespeaking of Babylon's captivity. And he said, there is where she will give answer to me. And in some respects, God shows us in the valley of Achor. And we give answer to God in our obedience, in our service. Uh, anyway, he said, I, they'll give answer. She'll give answer to me there in that valley of trouble. And she's not coming out until she no longer sees me as Bala, but as Isha. In the Hebrew, that means master and loving husband. And so they looked on God as a demanding master. And how many in the church today looks at God that way? They see him as an old man with a beard, and he's just got a grim look on his face, and he's just against everything that's fun and pleasurable. That's the way the world, see, that's the way a lot in the church see God. But he's, he's very loving. 
and caring. And so he took Judah, the last of Israel, off into Babylon's captivity for an attitude adjustment. And he said, she's not coming out until she no longer sees me as a hard master, but as a loving, caring, providing husband. Beautiful picture. But that's why you and I are in the valley of trouble. <laughs> We're in the valley of decision, aren't we? We decide each day and every day. And our love supposedly grows stronger. Our faith grows stronger. Uh, the strength that we have uh, approbate from God grows stronger. And we're able to stand. Because Paul said in conclusion in Romans 8 verse 31, Since God is for us and he is, who or what can be against us? He despaired not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Don't you know it's God that justifies? Who is he that uh, condemneth? Oh, Christ doesn't because he's the one that died for us and intercedes in behalf of us. And then Paul's conclusion is just profound. I'm persuaded to neither death nor life nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So we're pretty secure, aren't we? Amen. But we're in the valley of decision and we'll decide each day when we wait who our master is and who we'll serve. But it's a loving relationship. And so... The church that Paul wrote to in Ephesus, he said that God chose you before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and without blemish before him. And again, that is not by your performance. That's by the fact that you're in Christ. Where 1 John 1, 7 says, if you walk in the light as God's in the light, if you're willing to walk with him in the truth, uh, you have fellowship with God. And the blood of His Son continually cleanses you along the way. All the way. And so there's a people who are holy and without blemish, Ephesians 1, 4 again, uh, because of the blood of Christ, not because of their goodness or their perfection. That was Ephesians 1.4, wasn't it? Yes. Ephesians 1.10, just stay in the same chapter and drop down a few verses. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ. In one. We'll read the rest of the letter and he's talking about that oneness is the church. Is the Jews included in that? Yeah. Their salvation is contingent upon our salvation in Christ. Because John 14, 6, what Jesus said to the Jew and the Gentile. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so God doesn't have a salvation for the Jews, and then another one over here for the Gentiles. Read Colossians sometimes, read Ephesians, and they'll make it clear that God has took a twain, Jew and Gentile and made them one in Christ. 
And so, uh, the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And in Colossians 1, verse 27, in whom, the God, whom, in whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so God chose all of this before we were made the worlds. There's a lot that needs to be explained along that way and understanding all of that. But God, the, the whole thrust of it is God loves you. And He, you have no value until you prove it. You go in the army and you think they hate you because they put you in boot camp. They're preparing you for battle. They're preparing you to survive on the battlefield. And that's what the God's Word is. A preparation for you on the battlefield of life. After all, we're elected as soldiers on Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18. Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. And because of that, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand in the wicked days. And then he describes the weaponry and the the armament that we've been given by God. We've been, we've been given everything sufficient unto our deliverance and our salvation. And it's all found in Christ, whether we're Jew or Gentile. But our salvation is in Christ. It's not in you and me. Uh, in Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 10, Paul explains the freeness of salvation. He says, for by grace are you saved through your faith. Now, he didn't say through your works. He said through your faith. In fact, in Romans 5.1, he declares the conclusion to his arguments there in chapter 3 and 4. He says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace in God. Not by works, by faith. And so... What was I just talking about? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Huh? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Oh, yeah. For by grace are you saved through your faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of your works. Lest any man should boast. For we, the Christian, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we have good works to do, but the good works doesn't save us. Jesus does. See, that's the problem with the legalist. He's looking for salvation in himself. Because you ask him, uh, do you know that you're saved, brother? And his answer, if he answers you, uh, if he answers you at all, will be, well, you know, I don't know. I'm just hoping that God lets me live long enough to be good enough to be saved. Where's he looking for salvation? It's not on the cross. It's in himself. But does he preach about the cross? Yeah. 
Does he partake of the supper? Oh, yeah. But he doesn't understand it. He thinks salvation contingent on his works. He's like the Pharisee that Jesus spoke of that waited till noon when all the people were on the street there in Jerusalem. And he'd come out and he'd get their attention. And he'd look up to heaven with a loud voice. I thank thee, Father, that I'm not like that sinner over there. Because I do this and I do that. I tithe and I, I you know. That's a legalist. Paul talked about the legalists amongst the Jews. They were all legalists for primarily. Romans 10, 1 and 2. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Somebody says, You mean the Jews weren't saved? That's exactly what he said by inspiration of God. My prayer to God is for Israel that they might be saved. For I bear them record to have a zeal for God. You know a lot of people have zeal for God, don't you? But not according to knowledge. And then Paul explains. He says, here's what they do. Going about to establish their own righteousness. There's the legalist. In doing so, they reject the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God. Which is faith in Christ Jesus. So the legalist is not looking back to Calvary for salvation. Where's he looking? To himself. And yet Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. They don't see that. And they're lost, like Paul said about the Jews. There's a lot of good people going to glut hell. Hell's going to be glutted with a bunch of good people. And we will have known many of them in our lifetime. That's sad to say. But salvation is not in a legalist and his ability to be good and do good. The legalist looks to the future for the day when he's perfect. Never will be. The Christian looks back in history to the cross of Christ and even beyond that to the cross that God established in his eternal purpose before he ever made a world. What's that got to do with the Gospel of John? I don't know, but we're going <laughs> to go over here and look in it again and see if we can get started this morning. In John. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about the author, John. In Matthew 4, verse 21, you can read that. It just merely states that he, John was the son of Zebedee, that's all. And of uh, Salome, his mother. Matthew 27, 56, Mark 15, 40. You can look those things up yourself if you're interested in them. But one, he was one of the Lord's apostles, John was. <coughs> Jesus nicknamed him and his brother, his brother James, who was also an apostle. He nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. Mark 3, verse 17. And that implied that they were uh, uh, vehement, 
violent, tempered, rash, and a, a fiery disposition. And they proved it. Because in the Gospels, Mark 9, verse 38, John confronted and forbid a stranger using the name of Christ in casting out demons. <coughs> and another occasion, he wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans in Luke 9, verse 54. So they were prone to have a violent nature. <coughs> Isn't it interesting the men that the Lord chose to be apostles? And isn't it interesting that he never chose a woman? Have you ever thought about that? Women's lib has got to have a problem with that. Oh, they have a lot of problems, but that would be another one they would add to their list. Why, he didn't choose a woman as an apostle. He didn't choose the lawyers down in Jerusalem either that had the degrees. He chose what the enemy called as lowly Galileans, just fishermen. Because he knew the fact that God doesn't reveal himself to the wise and the prudent. The arrogant of this world thinks they know everything. Why, I've been to college. I know about every stuff that you need to know. Oh, you do? You don't know about Jesus, do you? But the simple man does. And you read 1 Corinthians 1, and Paul makes it clear that God chose everything different than what man would choose. Because he chose the weak things of the world to confound the things that are wise and mighty. And so God... Uh, befuggle the world. Uh, in fact, the reason Paul said that was because he'd already showed that the Jews, Jesus, the preaching of the cross to, to the Jews was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks it was foolishness to think for a minute that a Savior could save mankind by going to a cross. Anyway, God chose just the opposite of what man would choose to bring to naught the wisdom of the wise. But when you consider who Jesus chose, He chose lowly Galileans. He chose Peter. And what did He do first off? He changed His name, didn't He? His name was Cephas. He changed it to Peter. You know what Peter means in the Greek? It's Petros. It means a small pebble, hard like a rock, but easily moved about. You can walk across it and toss it there and there. It just easily moved about in life. Didn't Peter prove true to that image? Yeah. And the Lord shows a man like that? Isn't that strange? <coughs> and then he chose James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Sons of thunder, he called them because they'd pop you in their nose in a New York second if you got in their way. Now, it's, it's ironic that John turned out to be known as the apostle of love because he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John along with the Gospel of John. But he come to be known as the apostle of love and yet he started out as one that would pop you right in the nose if you got in his way. 
quick to make a judgment and quick to act on it. It's just interesting the men that God chose to be apostles. And those lowly Galileans were charged with the commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. All the world? What about part of it? All of it. And every creature? What about some of them? Every creature. And of course, Paul said that they finished their commission when he wrote the book of Colossians in 62 A.D. He said in the first chapter, in verse 26 or 29, by that time he said the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. God, Paul wasn't, at, uh, wasn't uh, speaking from his own wisdom. He's speaking by inspiration of God. Every man, every person was heard the gospel. Had God plowed the field with his love and his judgment before the first century? You've read the book of Daniel, haven't you? You read where God sent Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Nebuchadnezzar, by God's uh, decree, ruled the world, the whole world. It's right there in Daniel, if you want to read it, first few chapters. And yet God revealed a dream to him because he knew that that dream would be broadcasted to the whole world. And in that, God was plowing the field. You know what it means to plow? Uh, you got a crop that's going to come on later, but right now you're preparing the ground for it. And so God prepared the field. He sent Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And the thrust of that dream is found in verse 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor the sovereignty thereof left to another people. But it will break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. That was during the Roman Empire. And so, uh, and so God had uh, prepared man for the coming of Christ and the preaching of the gospel. The whole world, for some four, uh, let's see, uh, some 400 years, the whole world stood in anticipation anxious for this day to come that they heard from that dream of Nebuchadnezzar's that God sent him. They were looking for this kingdom that would be established, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and justice and equity for all that would stand forever. And they were looking for it. The whole world was anxious for it. And the apostles were commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Is it any wonder that they had such effect on the world? And some fool preacher today will say, we got to reduplicate the Great Commission. No, you never will. You never will. And as Jesus said, this world hates you. He's not, this world is not your friend. They don't like what you say. They don't like the definite uh, articles of faith that you advocate. They don't like it. Nobody gonna tell me what to do. Hell, I'm my own person. Yeah, you are. Headed for a devil's hell. 
and so stubborn that you won't admit the truth. Anyway, God plowed the fields back in the Old Testament period, particularly in Daniel, the second chapter, with a dream that he sent Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, don't you know Nebuchadnezzar boasted of that and was proud of that and announced it to the whole world. And so when the, again, when the apostles were dispatched to go into all the world and preach the gospel, the world was already plowed. They were anxious to hear about this new kingdom in the days of the Roman Empire. Uh, let me state one other thing about John and we'll have that out of the way for next week along with a whole bunch of things uh, John was one of the closest to Jesus and I can see why probably don't you draw those who need you the most closer to you than anybody else? doesn't mean that you love some of your children less. It just means that this one is endeared to you because maybe they need more help than the others. But anyway, Scripture declares that he was one of the closest to Jesus. Five times he's spoken of as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John 12, verse 23, 19, verse 26, 20, verse 2, 21, verse 7, and verse 20, and you have a concordance. If you missed those, probably did. <laughs> you can look them up. But we'll end our study this morning right there, and maybe next week we'll get into the Gospel of John, but that's going to be our study. Thank you.